So today we reach this stage looking at the Nicene Creed, this early set of beliefs that the church put together in about the fourth century. Uh, I believe he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's what we're looking at, uh, the idea of God as judge, a nice light subject for Midsummer's Day, and God as our judge. Now, the reality is that in Scotland, in the UK, in 2015, uh, various images will come into our mind when we hear the word judge. Um, it might be somebody like Simon Cowell. Um, he will come into our minds when we think of judge. We think of a panel of judges. If it's not the X factor, then it will be perhaps the voice. Um, so it might be Sir Tom Jones. Will that chair turn around? Will God's judgment seat be like an eternal episode of The Voice? Uh, God will be on his throne and the question will be, will he turn around or won't he turn around? And what are the implications if he doesn't turn around? Or perhaps if you are very sad, um, it will be the Strictly Come Dancing panel that springs to mind when you think of the word judge. Um, you want God to at least give you seven, at least seven. But whatever you may think of when it comes to judge, you know that there will be um, one of these horrendous stories, perhaps a backstory. There'll be tears uh, when somebody comes forward in one of these obviously staged auditions. And by now, after 10 years or so of The X Factor, we know that if there is a backstory that's very sad and very tragic, this is the person who is going to win. Uh, this is the person who will win after 10 weeks. This is the person who will have the number one at Christmas and never be heard of again. Judge conjures up all sorts of images. Some of you actually do spend all your time in courts, not because you're professional criminals, um, but because some of you actually earn your living uh, through being perhaps advocates or solicitors or even judges. We have two or three uh, people from this congregation who earn their living as judge. So for you, there's a different image that comes into your mind when you hear the word judge. But facing a judge is actually quite a scary experience. Um, obviously, I would presume that not many of you have ever experienced what it's like to face a judge. I have once in my life. I know what it is to stand in a court of law and face a judge. I was aged 18 and I was learning to drive and it was just between um, leaving school and waiting to go to university. I was waiting for my A-level results, the equivalent of advanced hires. And um, I persuaded my sister to take me out driving. She was, is older than me, and uh, she was sitting in the passenger seat, and I was driving. It was a lovely summer's evening, and we were out in the Cheshire countryside near where we lived, and we came to a particular junction. I started to turn right off the main road onto a side road. When round the bend, doing at least 70 miles an hour, came a car. I managed to turn right, get out of the way of this car, but the car that was coming on to us just completely smashed into the car that was behind me, waiting for me to turn right. It wrote off his car. 
The man who was waiting behind me was so outraged by what had happened, he wanted it reported to the police. So, this is before the days of mobile phones, so we sent off carrier pigeons and various things and eventually found a phone and, and the police came and we had to go to the police station and give evidence and make reports and, and all that. And the guy wanted it done because he wanted the guy prosecuted who'd come round the bend and smashed into his car. The driver behind me and myself and my sister were absolutely convinced that this guy was doing at least 70, probably in a 50 mile an hour uh, zone. And so we wanted him prosecuted, we wanted him held to account. Well, imagine my horror, my shock, my outrage, when four or five weeks later, an envelope from the Cheshire Constabulary dropped into my um, front door. And it said that they were charging me with driving without due care and attention. And this was my date in court, set in a few weeks in advance. So my day in court came, and um, I sat next to and behind my solicitor. It was a magistrate's court. There was one magistrate. And it was a very, very nerve-wracking experience. It was absolutely terrifying. The evidence was gone through from the prosecution. And at the end of the evidence for the prosecution being given, my lawyer stood up and said, um, I believe that there's no case for my client uh, to answer. And I submit to you, Your Honor, that this case should be dismissed. And I agreed with him, <laughs> mainly because I was, well, my dad was paying for him. And the magistrate left and went into his chambers and had a, had a think. And the chief superintendent who presented all the evidence for the police, he came across and patted my shoulder and said, don't worry, son, you'll get off, it'll be okay. I said, thanks. And the magistrate then came out. And not only to our surprise did he say that he thought there was a case for me to, to answer, actually he found me guilty and he then proceeded to say that I was guilty of driving without due care and attention he awarded me three points on my provisional driving license he charged me a hundred pounds fine I've been working in a pub for two weeks by the stage I had no money no income no savings he fined me a hundred pounds and then he also awarded a hundred pounds costs against me so I'm 200 pounds down, three points on a provisional driving license, and I was furious. I was absolutely furious. I remember that night driving, well not driving, a friend drove me <clears throat> up onto Alderley Edge, which was near about five or six miles away from where we lived. And I'd been a Christian for about 14 months by that stage. And I remember standing on Alderley Edge and shouting at God. Absolutely, I think the Scottish term is pelters at God. I really shouted at God, this wasn't fair, this wasn't just. Why hadn't God done something about it? This was outrageous. I was 200 pounds out of pocket. These were some of the words that came out of my mouth. I'd only been a Christian for 14 months. There were other words that came out of my mouth that I cannot say in a church service. But I shouted at God, so when I hear the word judge, notwithstanding the people in this congregation that I know who are judges, that's what comes into my mind when I think of the word judge. It can be a terrifying experience. I did love the true story I heard this week um, 
from an alpha course in Scotland that happened a few months ago, um, where somebody was um, uh, somebody not yet Christian um, attending the alpha course. Um, he, he's a bookie, and uh, we'll call him Jimmy Campbell. That's not his real name, um, but he told his his alpha small group um, that. Um, that week, he, he, he and his wife were getting divorced. Very sad, tragic story. Um, but that particular week had been when his, his divorce had come to court. And uh, he, he related the story that what had happened is that um, the, the judge had, had said, Now, Mr. Campbell, um, I am minded so to give your wife £300 a month. And the bookie, Jimmy Campbell, had stood up and said, that's very kind of you, Your Honour. I may chip in something myself as well. Um, and you won't be surprised that he was found guilty of contempt of court. Um, so you have got to be careful uh, how you act in court. So what's that got to do with this passage that Katrina read for us a few moments ago? Second Timothy and chapter 4 says twice that God is our judge. Jesus is actually described as judge 19 times in the New Testament. It follows on from the description of God in the Old Testament as judge nearly 50 times. So therefore it should come no surprise that in the Nicene Creed, this early statement of Christian belief that dates from the 4th century, when they were trying to explain who Jesus is, who God is, how God could be up there and down here and in me and in you and in Christ reconciling the world to himself, one of the titles that they should ascribe to Jesus is judge. That he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for people who are not yet Christians? And how does Jesus as judge differ or perhaps is the same as our earthly images of judges? Well, these words from 2 Timothy that Katrina read a few moments ago are some of the last words written or spoken by the Apostle Paul. He's writing them to a young church leader, Timothy, that he's left behind in Ephesus. So what we have here are quite poignant words. Timothy was um, the Apostle Paul's protege or apprentice. Um, think James Green to me. That was the sort of, that's a scary thought. Um, but that was the relation between the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Timothy was this young apprentice that initially Paul had had not much faith in. Um, actually, we're told in the Acts of the Apostles that um, Paul and Barnabas actually fall out over Timothy. Um, they have what's described in the New Testament as a sharp disagreement, which probably hints at a big row, um, all around the person of Timothy. Because Barnabas says Timothy's got it within him to become a leader, and Paul thinks he's not going to cut the mustard. And actually, Paul and Barnabas, who've worked together for years, they part company at this point all over the question of whether Timothy has got it in 
outside of him to become a leader. But the years have gone by and Paul has learned to give Timothy a second chance. And he's left Timothy in charge of one of his favorite churches in Ephesus. It's one of his favorite churches because Paul himself spent three years planting this church, teaching in Ephesus, explaining the Christian faith. He rented a, the Hall of Tyrannus um, when he was kicked out of the synagogue in Ephesus. And he teaches and preaches for three years. And he loves this church. You see, when he, he meets the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 21, he weeps, he cries, because he knows it's the last time that he's going to see the people from the church in Ephesus. Well, what we have here in 2 Timothy 4 are some of the last words that Paul writes. In just a few weeks, or perhaps even just a few days... Church tradition has it that Paul will be taken from where he's under house arrest in Rome. He'll be taken to just outside Rome on what's called the Ostian Way. Think of the bypass. That's the Ostian Way. And he was beheaded there. Only just a few weeks before the Emperor Nero himself was to commit suicide. There's sort of echoes of Dietrich Bonhoeffer with the way he was put to death just a few weeks before um, the end of the Second World War. Well, the same happened to the Apostle Paul. He died, was beheaded, executed, just a few weeks before the Emperor Nero uh, was to commit suicide as well. But what we have here, therefore, are some poignant words as, as Paul gives some really important, basic, but last principles to Timothy. And he gives him this solemn charge Verse 1. But what's interesting that he frames this solemn charge in verse 1 and verse 8 with two references to Jesus as judge. So verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? And then verse 8, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So the reality for Paul of Jesus as judge is very clear. Now these are some of my favorite Bible verses. This has been one of my life passages. Um, just to put it out there, this is what I want read at my funeral. Okay, this passage that we had. Um, Katrina, if you're free, um, did it so well this morning. Um, do it again, but hopefully not for a while. Um, because as somebody who's now been in ministry for 30 years, um, it sums up what it is to be a preacher and a teacher, to be an evangelist. Paul gives Timothy this solemn charge, and it's made up of five commands. Firstly, verse 2, preach the word. Um, Literally, he's telling him to be a herald, to be a town crier of the royal good news. Preach the word. Secondly, verse 2, he says, be prepared. It's actually a sort of military command. Apparently in the army they used to say, stand by your beds. Well, that's the equivalent of what Paul is writing to Timothy. He's saying, be prepared, stand by, get ready to preach the word. 
in season and out of season. When's that? When it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. How is he to do it? Thirdly, by correcting, encouraging and rebuking. Admonish, advise, warn, but not with just good advice. The, the sense of advising is by actually teaching people what the Bible says. It's by expounding scripture. It's not coming up with good advice or sort of mottos or aphorisms that people can live by. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. That's a very different thing. Yes, you do find in the gospel how we should live, but it's not like a sort of celestial Oprah. That's not what the Christian faith is about. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. And Timothy is to help give advice to people by expounding scripture, by correcting, by rebuking, and by encouraging. Not simply telling people to cheer up, but by telling them who God is and what God has done for them. Fourthly, he tells them to do or he tells Timothy to do it with great patience. He says, when you teach, when you preach, when you correct, when you encourage, when you advise, do it with great patience. And then finally, Paul says to Timothy, do it with careful instruction. So preach the word, be prepared, correct, encourage, and rebuke, be patient with great patience, and do it with careful instruction. And the five commands that Paul gives to Timothy are in the light of three incentives. Firstly, because of who Jesus is, the judge, that he frames this solemn charge in, in verse 1 and verse 8. Then because of the current situation that the Christians find themselves in, because of the persecution that they're undergoing from the Emperor Nero. And thirdly, because of Paul's own imprisonment and imminent death. Paul describes what will happen. For the time will come, verse 3, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ways away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Ephesus was a place that was full of myth. Myths about genealogies, myths about the role of men, myths about the role of women. That's why Ephesians 5 is there, because Paul is trying to debunk some of the myths that were around in Ephesus. That's why he says what he says in Ephesians chapter 5. That's what he says about the role of women to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, because he wants them to be countercultural to what's going on there. But he says to Timothy... Verse 5, you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship because you're undergoing persecution. Do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And then he speaks about the end of his life in this beautiful and poignant way. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. That's how he refers to his death. He actually uses the term Exodus, departure. The time for my exodus is near. 
I'm being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He thinks about death in the same way that we might think about leaving from an airport or leaving from a train station. For Paul, it was like leaving a harbour. The time for my departure is near. And then he comes up with this amazing description that for me is, has just resonated down the years. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What an amazing epitaph that would be. I have fought the good fight. Literally, I have wrestled the good wrestle. That's what it means. It's not about boxing. It's about wrestling. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Paul knows Timothy quite well. He knows Timothy's mum. He knows Timothy's grandma. And he, he's known Timothy from when he was very young. And he knows that Timothy can be a bit reticent when it comes to leadership. He knows that Timothy's personality is, is, is a bit shy. That's why he says God has not given you a spirit, spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-control. He knows that Timothy can be shy. He knows that Timothy can be a, a bit diffident about things. Diffident was a word that was used to describe me when I was being interviewed as to whether I should be ordained. It's not a word that I recognized as one that would describe me, but that's how other people said they, they found me as diffident. Kathy and I looked at one another and went, diffident? You? Don't think so. Timothy was diffident. Timothy was a bit sort of, oh, I'm not sure. He was quite sort of shy and timid. So Paul says to him, Endure great hardship. Remember that Jesus is the judge. And there is in store for me now the crown of righteousness. And he uses a picture from the Olympics. Ephesus was the site of an annual Olympic Games. There was a huge stadium that, um, think Easter Road, think Tyne Castle, had a capacity of about 25,000. And every year there would be an annual Olympic Games held in this stadium. And Paul is deliberately using that picture when he speaks about the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now, Tom Wright tells, uses this illustration um, of uh, when he was working at a university. And I don't know about you, but maybe it says something about me. But I've always wanted to be an exam invigilator. Just to get back for all the time that I went through. Um, you know, to have the power of those words. You may now turn your paper over. It's an incredible power. Something sadistic um, about it as well. Um, but the other one that Tom Wright said he loved to, to say was the bit towards the end of the exam where he would simply say, you have 10 minutes left. And Tom Wright, I mean, he was a bishop in the Church of England, so he is a Christian, but he's a bit cruel as well because he says that he used to love watching the reaction of the people in the exam room 
at that moment. When he said, there are 10 minutes left, he said there were two distinct reactions by the candidates in the examination room. One group would go, it's 10 minutes left. <laughs> no point doing any more. Enough's enough. I think I'll be okay. 10 minutes left. Take it easy. And he could see them visibly relax, almost sometimes put their pens down and just give up. There were 10 minutes left. But Wright says there was another reaction by groups of people in the examination room who, when they heard the words, you have 10 minutes left, started to write even faster. This was now the time to really kick into gear and to, to really go for it and to cram everything in. And Tom Wright suspected that the latter group got better exam results than the first group. I would have to say, from my personal experience, as I fell into the first group, that would be true. <laughs> Those of us who went, ah, it'll be okay, I've done enough, no point doing any more, there's only 10 minutes left, well, there's nine left now, I'll just relax, it'll be fine, it'll be okay. We tended not to do so well in our exams. But the group that said, 10 minutes left, let's crack on, let's cram as much in, they start to write even faster, they tend to get better exam results. Now, Tom Wright says that is, in essence, what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, in the light of Jesus, who is coming as judge, in the light of Christ Jesus, who is the coming judge, who, and all those who long for his appearing. He's saying, Timothy, there's only 10 minutes left. Live your life. Discharge the duties of your ministry. Preach the word. Live in such a way as if you believe there is only 10 minutes left. The early church believed that the return of Jesus was imminent. If you read through the New Testament, they believed that the second coming of Jesus was just around the corner if it wasn't going to happen that day. Now, the reality is that there were about 30 years had gone by since Jesus had left them when Paul is writing to Timothy. 2,000 years on, it's very easy for us to think, ah, there's 10 minutes left. <laughs> What's the point? We've done enough. It'll be okay. And Paul says to you and to me this morning, there's 10 minutes left. Live your life. Tell people about Jesus in such a way that you believe there is only 10 minutes left. So that when you stand before God, you can say, I have fought the fight. I've run the race, I've kept the faith. Now the reality is, Paul says, that there is in store for him and all those who long for the appearing of Jesus a crown of righteousness. In the Olympic Games in those days, you didn't get a medal around your neck. You got a laurel wreath. And the laurel wreath was placed on your head. I think they did do it at a recent Olympic Games. You got a, a medal, but you also got a laurel wreath 
There's a picture of Jessica Ennis winning her gold medal at London 2012. So as well as a gold medal being placed around her neck, I think by George Osborne, who was booed on the night, a laurel wreath was also placed on her, on her head. But there's a fundamental difference between what happened in the ancient world and the Olympic Games of Paul's time and what happened in London 2012. You see, when you ran at one of the Olympic Games, and they were held in Athens, they were held in Ephesus, they were held in different places around the ancient world, it was a long way from where you lived to where the Games was held. And you might be the winner of whatever race it was, the marathon or the discus or whatever it, event it was that you'd entered. But it could take you days, it could take you weeks, it could take you months to get back to where you lived. So by the time you arrived home, you could arrive home wearing a crown of twigs. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks about the crown that will not disappear, the crown that will not perish. In 1 Corinthians 9, a crown that will not fade away. So Paul is saying, Timothy, live as if there's 10 minutes left. Live as if there's 10 minutes left because of the persecution that you're undergoing. Live as though there's 10 minutes left because I'm about to die. My time for my departure has come. But also, Timothy, live as though there's 10 minutes left because Jesus is going to judge you. You are going to stand before Jesus as judge, either if he comes or if you die and go and face him. Now, what do we know about the judgment that Jesus will give? Well, we know three things, I think. Firstly, that God is all-knowing. And because God is all-knowing, God's judgment about every single human life that has ever existed will be a just judgment. Second, because God is holy, and he is the reason that we can know right from wrong, why we know something is unfair or unjust, why I was able to stand on over the edge and shout because I thought things were unjust and unfair, ultimately my knowledge of what was just comes from who God is. So the decision that God will make about every single human life and their eternal future will be a just one and it comes out of God's holiness and it comes out of the fact that God knows everything about us. Now, when I used to work as an evangelist, one of the pictures that I used to use about people coming face to face with God, um, um, several of us used to use this picture as we used to say, now imagine you're, you're, you're standing in front of God and imagine the whole of your life Every single thought, every single emotion, every single desire, every single motive is played out on a big video screen before God. Why we came up with this thing, I don't know, because this was before the days of data projectors and large video screens. We were prophetic. But we said, imagine the whole of your life being played out on a video screen and everybody seeing what was happened, what has happened in your life. Horrendous thought. 
Everything that's gone on in your head, every motive, every thought, every action played out in front of everybody. Now, I don't know why we used to use that illustration, because it has no biblical basis whatsoever. And actually, the more I've thought about who God is and God's character and God's kindness and God's mercy, I think it will be an audience of one. It may well be that God will go over every single detail of my life, but I think there'll just be me and him in the room. And when God takes you through your life, it'll be just you and him in the room. Because I don't think it will serve the purposes of God for everybody else to see what you have thought or I have thought and done and said over the years. But at that moment, we will not be trying to convince God to allow us into heaven because of what we have done. The only reason that you and I will be allowed to go into heaven, as it were, to spend eternity with God, having spent a life with God, is because of what Christ has done. But here's the kicker. As I was looking at the creed this week, a thought struck me. I was looking at the phrase that we're looking at today. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And then my eye happened to glance back to the sentence before. And the sentence before in the creed is the one that we looked at two or three weeks ago. It's the one that says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if I'm honest, for the first time it struck me, isn't it odd, isn't it interesting, isn't it maybe not a coincidence that the early church put those two phrases together? That Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Because you see, something would have absolutely transformed my experience of being in a courtroom aged 18 all those years ago. Something would have made it a completely different experience for me. Imagine if my dad had been the judge. And imagine not only that my dad was the judge, he wasn't, he was a commercial salesman, but imagine it was my dad who was the judge. And imagine it was my brother or my sister who was my advocate, my solicitor, who knew me inside out, who knew me better than I know myself, and who knew not only what I'd done, but knew that they themselves had paid the punishment for my crime. Imagine if the lawyer next to me had turned to me and said, I'll take those three points. I'll pay your £100 fine. I'll pay your £100 costs. That would have transformed my experience of being in a courtroom that day. And yet that is exactly the picture that we have in the New Testament. Because the judge who will judge us, if we're Christians, is somebody that we know. He's somebody who's on our side. He's not somebody in a funny wig and funny robes looking down with stern eyebrows and a big hammer. 
He's our Father who loves us, who's compassionate and merciful and kind. But even more than that, the person who is our advocate, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, is the very person who has paid the penalty for my sin. The one who has taken the punishment on himself. The one who has died in my place. The one who has enabled justice to be done. The one who has satisfied the wrath of God, as we sing in one of our songs. You see, if God were to let everybody off, that would not be justice. But God saw that justice was done. By putting the sin of the whole world, your sin and my sin, onto Jesus. So that when he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if I'm honest, for the first time in 30 odd years of being a Christian, I understood why the early church put those two phrases together. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the second sentence is totally transformed by the first. He will judge the living and the dead. But he is the one who is also seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who pleads our case. He is the one who is our advocate. He is the one who is on our side. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury... I did that this morning at the nine o'clock. Alan McLean said he has never seen any advocate in Scotland ever do that. <laughs> but the strange thing was that as soon as I did that, everybody knew what I was doing. I was being a lawyer, because we've all watched Ron Paul of the Bailey, and that's what lawyers do. But apparently they don't do it in Scotland. But I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen of the court, that you and I, need not fear judgment, need not fear meeting God face to face if we know the judge already. And if we know the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, if we know the one who intercedes for us, who pleads our case for us, the one who paid the penalty for our sin, the one who served the crime, the time, if you like, in the place of our crime, he died in our place. And that transforms the judgment. That means that it's not a cold forensic thing. It means that it's infused with love and passion and grace and mercy and compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. You may have lived with the guilt of something for years. You may have done something or said something or felt something and it may well be that deep down in your head or, or in your heart you think, yeah, I know I'm forgiven but God can't forgive that. And the reason God can't forgive that is because I can't forgive myself. Let me say as clearly and as powerfully and as persuasively as I can this morning. There is nothing so bad, so horrendous, that God cannot and will not forgive. And my prayer for each one of us this morning, as we leave this place, 
is that we know we're forgiven, that we know that we're loved, that we know that we're accepted. And on that day, when it comes, either when we die or either when Jesus comes again, whichever one comes first, we will be able to say, I've fought the fight, I've kept the faith, I've run the race, and we will pass into the presence of the one who will judge us, and we will be surprised because we know the judge, and we know that the judge knows us.